you have a Bible and you'd like to, you can turn to Genesis 27. Our Old Testament reading is from Genesis chapter 27. We'll start in verse 14 and we'll read through verse 29. Lend your attention, this is God's word. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with him, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near, that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac his father, who felt him, and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him, because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near to me and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him, and said, See, The smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Thus far the reading of God's word. You turn in the Gospel of Matthew to chapter 5. Continuing through the Sermon on the Mount, we come to verses 31 and 32. This is God's Word. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Thus far the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing.
Uh, Lord, your gifts are uh, so good and uh, they are everywhere on display around us. We give you thanks for the gift of your Son, uh, whom you sent to a sinful, miserable, and broken world. And this in display of your excellent love. Uh, Father, we confess our sin. We confess our need for your word, Lord, to search our hearts, to expose our hearts, to direct us in how we are to respond in the light of the plain testimony of your word and your great mercy set on display in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray, Lord, that even now as we wrestle with your word and come before it, you would humble our hearts, that you would attend your word with your spirit, that you would uphold me and and be pleased to overcome my weakness for good. And you drive us all into the arms of Christ, the faithful husband, the one who laid down his life for his wife. In true revelation of, of who you are, abundant and steadfast love and mercy and faithfulness. Help us, O Lord, in these things, for we ask in the name of Christ our King. Amen. Martin Lloyd-Jones points to this passage as one of the many blessings that come by preaching sequentially through the Bible. He, he makes the point that this is not a topic we're going to run to, left to ourselves. Now, this isn't a text we would seize upon. I can't imagine too many pastors whom you interview say, hey, what's your favorite text to preach on? And they say, oh, it's Matthew 5, 31 and 32, without a doubt. Mm. No, they, they would choose John 3.16. They would choose John 17.3, which was... Calvin's favorite passage, the excellencies of Romans 8, Romans 5, Ephesians 2, they go almost anywhere. They probably picked Job before they picked Ephesians or uh, Matthew 5. Uh, but God doesn't cater to our preferences. He, he knows that we're very much of Adam in our flesh, uh, that we would rather hide than have our hearts laid bare, than have our brokenness laid bare, than have the world of sin and misery in which we've um, shared and making by our sin exposed in the light of his word. He won't let us because he loves us. He is that good physician, that good surgeon which doesn't shrink back from the hard diagnosis because he knows it's the only way to life. And so it's a hard text 
It's a dreadfully difficult text because it's a dreadfully difficult subject. It's a painful subject. It's a personal subject, intensely personal. Given the statistics, you likely have your own experience with divorce and broken families. Dreadfully personal. Destruction that hits at a level that really not too many other experiences in life hit at. I came across a quote that said, divorce is as painful as death. You could probably make the argument that it's more painful than death. Death makes a little bit more sense. Death leaves less questions unanswered. But if it's just as intensely personal, fueling the difficulty with which this topic is dealt, it's also intensely public. This doesn't happen in isolation. Sin doesn't happen in isolation, as we're going to see plainly here. This is a hard topic. It's a hard text. It's also hard because you'd be tempted to launch into a lecture on the topic of marriage, because this isn't the only thing the Bible says about marriage. It's not even the only thing that the Bible says about divorce. It's not the only thing that the Bible says about remarriage. There's other passages in the Gospels where Christ addresses the topic, where Paul addresses the topic. So it's fraught with difficulty. You talk about everything, you can't talk about everything, and you certainly can't parse out all of the specifics of every single case, which you're all bringing to bear on this text, because you all have your experiences with this hard reality. Whether as friends watching friends go through it, children watching parents go through it, those who have gone through it, those who have watched fellow church members go through it, you have all of that. The sermon is in the place to deal with case law, as it were. Chances are you have exceptions that you're going to want to bring up. Well, what about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? That's just not what we can deal with here. And so it's hard. It's hard to come before this text as God's people. One thing we can keep in mind, I think it's always important to keep in mind whenever we talk about our marriages is that we're not going to find the ideal marriage in this world. There's no iteration. Mark the godliest couple you know. And praise God that there are examples of godly couples. Praise God. But mark them. They fall short of the ideal. He falls short of the ideal husband. She falls short of the ideal wife. There's only one place we see the ideal couple. And it's only imperfectly. We see the ideal husband in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the ideal wife in potentially glimpsing through our imperfect vision now what the church will be when he returns and presents her pure, spotless, blameless in adoration and submission and love to her husband. So we can give thanks that even as we dive into the difficult topic of our marriages and the even more difficult topic of their dissolution, there is one who is faithful, even unto death, and even in the face of his bride's treachery, for that is what he gave his life to deal with, namely our sin, our treachery, our adultery.
So I pray that as the Lord does whatever he does in your particular heart, in the light of this text, he does so directing your eye to the faithful husband who is exalted as we consistently fail. So what should we say about this text? The first thing to note is that Christ is interested in our marriages. You want me to go right to the controversial bits, but I won't. (laughs) Start at just a delightful level. Christ is interested in your marriage. He's interested in your marriage because it's designed by Him. Our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit designed the gift of marriage. That's what He assumes in this passage. But he makes it even plainer in Matthew 19. It's not insignificant that Jesus teaches about marriage and divorce. He basically has this conversation twice and probably more times than that. (laughs) But in Matthew 19, he makes plain that marriage is designed by God. He quotes Genesis 1 and 2. And so the reason that Christ is interested in our marriages is because it's a gift from his Father indeed from him as the wisdom of God as the word of God through whom in whom by whom all gifts come to us and whose wisdom is on display in the gifts themselves God has designed the gift of marriage and he's intended it to be a permanent institution permanent in that it's always going to characterize life in this world. We're never going to evolve anthropologically, despite what the anthropologists want to tell you. (laughs) That those societies that practice either polygamous marriage or have somehow dispensed with this archaic institution as a vestige of the patriarchy, I don't know what they're saying, but they are saying these things. (laughs) That we're never going to evolve beyond marriage. Marriage is going to characterize human life from front to back. Jesus says this explicitly, even when he envisions the very last days. He says, in those days, they're going to be giving and receiving in marriage, and then the end will come. That common grace, blessing, that stabilizing institution which God gave in testimony to his goodness, in testimony to his intimate knowledge of us as his creatures is going to characterize human life in this world as long as there is human life in this world. The, marriage of institu- the institution of marriage is permanent. But he also suggests strongly that it's to be permanent at a more personal level as well, not just as an institution which abides. Part of the teaching with which he's engaging here is the popular idea that marriage was something to be cast off or broken basically at one's leisure. There's a conversation that was current among the rabbis at this time, which undoubtedly they're trying to conscript him into later in Matthew 19, not here. He's positively teaching about the kingdom here. But later they're going to try to drag him into the debates. They ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Well, the reason they frame it that way is because The popular teaching at the time was that a man could divorce his wife for any and every reason. 
appealing to Deuteronomy 24, which is clearly behind this text. That as long as a man wrote his wife a certificate of divorce, the reason itself could be essentially according to that man's preferences. The rabbis argued that it could be as trivial as a woman ruining a meal. It could be as basic as a man finding a woman he liked more. Josephus, that insufferable historian, writes, At that time, I dismissed my wife because her behavior displeased me. He callously records that for posterity. Mm. Jesus is very clearly confronting this set of ideas that marriage is ultimately catered to my preferences in an absolute degree. And particularly it is men, because Jewish law uniquely, maybe not exclusively, but uniquely profiled the man as the one who had the right to divorce. It's complicated a little bit by passages in Mark, which seem to suggest that either the man or the woman could initiate the procedures, whether that comes in from Roman law or whether it was something that had developed in Judaism. We don't know, but it's very plain that he brings men in view here because they primarily would have been the initiators of divorce. So he's confronting this sinful propensity of our hearts to pervert God's gifts to suit our sinful habits and desires. And he's challenging that. He's saying marriage is something which you receive on God's terms. So it's worth pointing out here that that's going to come into conflict with basically everything we're being taught right now. It's going to come in conflict with the legislation of the kingdom of earth in which we are partial citizens. So we have sort of two fronts here as a church to be aware of. This relentless indoctrination that comes from a culture that says, life's short, get a divorce. I I literally saw that on a billboard. Life's short, get a divorce. If your spouse stands in the way of your happiness, simply come up behind your spouse and inform them that you're leaving. (laughs) It's enmeshed in this whole perverse notion of what you ultimately need is your vision of happiness. Everyone else who gets in your way can be dispensed with. The Lord Jesus Christ says it's not to be so among you, my disciples. You're aware that there are bad, dangerous forms of teaching that are current and accepted and even glamorized in the world. But they are not your teachers. Mm. But additionally, the world legislates for this fact. And this is an important point to make. What's permissible to you as a citizen of the United States is not necessarily permissible to you as a citizen of heaven. Don't confuse your rights in the civil kingdom for what your responsibilities are in the heavenly kingdom. The takeaway is, if you find yourself pursuing your rights as a citizen of the United States, don't be surprised if the Lord prosecutes his rights upon you as a citizen of his kingdom. Meaning, the church is going to excommunicate you. 
because we're servants of heaven. And I don't care what the law of man tells you you can do or not do. We're beholden to a higher king. We're beholden to a higher law. Just because man says you can do it doesn't mean you can do it. May would have been the better use there of the volative. So we're aware that the Lord's teaching on marriage is confronted and causes tension with current forms of thinking and current forms of legislation that are everywhere around us. The Lord says, you belong to me. I'm the one who forms and fashions your mind. I'm the one who bought you. I'm the one who gave my life for you. I'm the one who ransomed you out of that world that is passing away and brought you in to my eternal kingdom. You're not beholden to that world. You're beholden to me. And besides, can't you see I'm better? Isn't it plain that I know better than they do? Isn't their folly self-evident in the dissolution that's being writ large? Isn't it self-evident in sociological study after sociological study that characterizes the damage the divorce done, not in one generation or two generations, but multiple generations? Isn't my wisdom plain on the matter? Or another way to put this, don't you trust me? If you don't trust me, don't trust them. Don't trust yourself. Learn how to trust me. Because <laughs> I'm the only one who's trustworthy. But if Christ is interested in our marriage, it also means he helps us in our marriages. That's encouraging, isn't it? He's interested in our marriages not just because it's a gift from his father, not just because it stabilizes human society, but because it is the theater, the arena, wherein the excellencies of his grace are uniquely seen. That might not be an overstatement. It might not just be a rhetorical flourish that I do tend to use from time to time. Because what does Paul say? The mystery of marriage corresponds to the mystery of the relationship between Christ and his church. There's something unique about marriage, or let's say there's a unique potentiality in marriage for something remarkably lovely to be glimpsed that defies everything we would expect about what's possible in the terms of this world. So if he's interested in our marriages, if he calls us unto lifelong faithfulness, that means he meets us in our marriages and he supplies us with everything necessary for life and godliness in our marriages. And that's encouraging because it means you're not alone. There's an irony in the gift of marriage that it can entail some seasons where you feel more alone than together. And just because you're married doesn't mean you're immune from loneliness because of all sorts of 
sinful realities that attend our relations. The Lord would have you as his children know, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that includes even marriages that are difficult. So we're encouraged to seek from the Lord that portion which he alone can provide to heed this call that he has upon us to persevere in faithfulness, even in hard marriages, and to look expectantly to his hand to provide us with that which we cannot muster in and of ourselves. But if he teaches the indissolubility of marriage as an idea, he also is not a stranger to the reality of sin. He acknowledges that dissolutions do take place. It said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality. Jesus is not a stranger to sin. He knows this world. He understands the reality of sin. And here he understands that there is such a sin which takes place, which can actually dissolve that which is otherwise indissoluble. And it's adultery. It's important to make that point. In cases of adultery, divorce is lawful. This is a bit more of a teaching portion of the sermon, but it's important to highlight this. That he doesn't say that divorce is never permissible in the church. I know there are some that hold that, but that's certainly not the classic Reformed position on the matter. It has not been such an absolute pronouncement that anyone who divorces anyone at all for any reason is absolutely and unqualifiedly in sin. He very clearly gives an exception here. You have to do some pretty intense injustice to this passage to kind of shoehorn it in to the commitment that in every case conceivable, divorce is forbidden. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 24, is a whole chapter on marriage and divorce. We read this. I thought I had it in my notes. I don't have it in my notes. <laughs> I will summarize it for you. It says, in cases where adultery has occurred, the innocent party is free to sue a divorce and free to remarriage, to remarry subsequently. This is not an absolute pronouncement. The Lord Jesus Christ does understand that some treacheries are so fundamental that even though a healing amending a restoration might be ideal. It's not always possible. Westminster Confession of Faith 24 goes on to identify willful desertion as another terrible situation where the church is, in keeping with Scripture, said, saying this is not sinful in and of itself. But just because it's not sinful in and of itself doesn't mean it's not dreadful. I think that that's another 
misunderstanding and foolish take on marriage that the church sometimes believes. It's even in cases where there are lawful grounds, and by lawful grounds we mean biblical grounds for divorce, that even in cases where there's biblical grounds for divorce, somehow the divorce is a silver bullet. A sober view of divorce is that it is always wretched. Hmm. A sober view of divorce is maybe it's the lesser of two evils, but it is still wretched. Hmm. It's worth noting here that uh, institutionally speaking, marriage is a creation of God. Marriage is a gift of God. Marriage is by God's design. We see no positive legislation for divorce in the Old Testament, meaning God doesn't initiate the institution of divorce. God doesn't design the dissolution of marriage. Rather, he accommodates it. It just shows up. That's really interesting, just from a narrative point of view. It's just there. (laughs) Divorce is just there. Now God regulates it. He curbs it. He concedes to it, to use the language that Jesus uses in Matthew 19. He permits it. But to mistake permission and concession for delight is folly. So even in cases where there are lawful grounds for divorce, it's a delusion to think that the divorce is going to make everything better. (laughs) The divorces in those instances like amputating a limb The limb may have been gangrenous, but you're still without a limb. So even in the accommodation that the Lord continues to acknowledge here, we're not to hear this delusive cry of culture that divorce makes everything better because my freedom is ultimately what I want. My freedom is ultimately what I need. And so then even in cases of lawful divorce, the church is called to walk through those seasons in humble reliance upon the Lord, bathing herself in Christian charity, acknowledging the intense vulnerability that attends hearts in such a deep season of wounding, but also to know that the Lord goes with down that road. That such a road is not severed from his mercy and his grace and his redeeming purposes, which can restore. The final point that he makes here is the controversial one. He closes by saying, except on the ground of sexual immorality, the man who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now this is very plainly extended to both male and female in the teaching of Mark. So it's not exclusively something that's true of men, as if a woman who divorces her husband 
for some other reason that's not sexual morality is somehow guiltless of this matter. That's not the case. This cuts both ways. But as we pointed out in Sunday school, the main question that we have when we hear this text is, well then, can she remarry? That's what we hear, right? That's you bringing your specific cases and questions to the text. That's not his main point. His main point is that the man's guilt has doubled. That's his main point. And recall that he's teaching disciples here. He's teaching the church here. So he's acknowledging your sinful propensity in those moments where things are hard to find a way to get out of it. So maybe that's a good place to camp out. Husbands, wives... Let the Lord lay you low. Every time you think, I'll just leave, you're sinning against your Lord. Mm. Are you laid low? It's right there. I'll just leave. If you've said that, get laid low. It's a dreadful thing to say. It's a dreadful thing to think. It's a dreadful thing to say. Have you made motions in that direction? That's a dreadful thing to do. Shame on you. If you're a Christian, you bear the name of Christ, you've sought that, shame on you. You've said that, shame on you. You've walked in that direction to any degree, shame on you. We should feel that. I love you, but we should feel that. I should feel that. You should feel that. We all have that. It's that Adamic impulse. Hide. Run. Forget everyone else. I'm just going to take care of myself and I'll make it on my own. The dreadful impulse, the selfish impulse. The assumption here is that the disciples are learning how to overcome that selfish impulse. The assumption here is that a disciple who hears that they're the cause of someone else's sin is going to shrink back from that course of action. That's the assumption. That's the primary thrust. So you're causing someone else to sin. Does that resonate with us? I don't know that it does anymore. Does it resonate with us? I don't, does it? We're so slow to ask about other people. We're so slow to consider the interests of others. We are so American in this regard. Christ is teaching us to consider the interests of others before our own. So if he says, look, the one for whom you're most responsible, you're going to be plunging her into sin. The Christian says, I don't want to do that. (laughs) Even my sin is so deranging that in a moment of absurdity, I say, fine, let her burn. At some point, you've got to come to your senses, right? At some point. Where the thrust of this text is not a moral conundrum about what the subsequent life of his divorced wife is going to be. That's not the thrust of the text. Admittedly, the question arises naturally from the text, but it's not the thrust of the text. The thrust of the text is, 
Look what you're about to bring about by your sin. Your sin isn't an isolated incident. Your sin generates dreadful realities for others. Others about whom you should be concerned. Shame on you that you're not. Shame on you that you're willing to burn their world down. Give thanks that your God doesn't think that way. Give thanks that I as your king don't think that way. Give thanks that I didn't seize upon what was in my best interests in the moment because I would have fled the cross. Give thanks that I didn't exalt my own interest above the interest of all others because salvation never would have occurred. He intends this teaching to dissuade us from the course of divorce, not to propose endless scenarios about the moral complexities that emerge in the wake of divorce. Sin makes things messy. The Lord is saying, let that cause you to shrink back from sin. (laughs) Let that cause you to flee to me. Now, the plain teaching of Scripture is there are some divorces that occur in the church where it is in both parties' best interest to remain unmarried. Paul says that plainly in 1 Corinthians 7, which just reminds us again that our ways are not God's ways. The ways of wisdom and life are so foreign to us that they seem utterly absurd when they're proposed. But the Lord is teaching us to lean not on our own understanding. To acknowledge Him in some of our ways? No, all of our ways. Because He's trustworthy, He's wise, and He's good. I'm struck here by the contagion of our sin. It's kind of like this dreadful domino world. You see those elaborate domino constructions where you tip one over and then all of a sudden everything falls. I trust you've had that experience with sin where one sin seems to lead to another sin and it's responded to sinfully and that multiplies sins and that seems to be the heart of the point. The sin isn't contained, it's a contagion. There's no quarantine, there's no injection that's going to keep it from happening. It's a contagion. It generates sin in others. And the Lord knows where the true responsibility is. He differentiates all of it. He's perfectly just. He's perfectly wise. It's all plain to Him. While in an absolute sense, there's no one innocent. In a relative sense, there very much are innocent and guilty parties. And it's all plain to Him. But what we're not to shrink back from, what we're to fear, to feel in the face of this is the contagion of our sin. The world that our sin builds is one of sin and misery and destruction. Our sin is contagious, and he would have us shrink back from it. I said earlier that our sin, even contrary to its design, exalts Christ. And I'm struck in the face of the contagion of our sin by the contagion of his righteousness. 
I'm struck that while it seems that everything we touch with our flesh generates world upon world of hurt, His touch generates life. His touch arrests destruction. His touch arrests pollution. The contagion of his righteousness is what is on display here as we sit at the feet of, his, of this king acknowledging we've gotten this wrong in so many ways. Teach us, O oh Lord, to follow in the path of righteousness. Forgive us, O Lord, of our folly which has destroyed the lives of those to whom we owe the greatest debt of love. Magnify yourself, O King, as the faithful husband who did not lay his life down for a good wife, who laid his life down for an adulterous wife. And in such a magnitude of love, he cleansed her. And he rescued her from the tyranny of her adulterous ways. And he's committed to showing her the excellencies of his love. This is our king. This is his love. This is his power. May it characterize all of the marriages in the church of God. And may we long for the day when we will see this husband face to face. Let's pray. Sanctify us, O Lord, by your word. Your word is truth. Whatever we have brought to the table, Lord, in the the form of defensiveness, disarm us. Exalt the Son as the one who forgives cleanses, strengthens, enables, leads, guides, loves, protects. Place us in awe of the magnitude of this love. We ask in his name. Amen.